This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival, to what should be one of the events of the festival, I think. Um, we have uh, Eleanor Cutton with us here, and Hannah Kent, um, both from, uh, well, from New Zealand and from, from Australia. Uh, not at all jet-lagged after long, <laughs> long, long journeys here. Um, before I introduce them properly, I should let you know who I am, um, so you know who to blame. Um, I'm Luke Brown, and I'm a writer too. Uh, my debut novel's out next year. Uh, I'll be 34 when that comes out. Um, uh, these two women are both six years younger than me and make me feel ashamed of what I've been up to for the, my wasteful life. Um, there's a huge buzz about both of these books, uh, even though they've, they've only been published this week. Um, when you buy them in the bookshop later and have them signed, you'll be one, among the first people in the world to, to get hold of them. Um, so to my, to my left, we welcome Eleanor Catton uh, to talk about her second novel, The Luminaries. Um, the Luminaries on this year's Booker Shortlist, and I'm not the only one who thinks it's a kind of hot tip to win it, actually. Uh, the novel that should win the Booker, uh, said, said today's uh, review in, in The Telegraph. Um, Catton is the longest writer on this long list. It's the longest, sorry. Catton is, <laughs> is the, not even the shortest. Catton is the youngest writer on this, on this list. Um, but this 830-page novel is one of the most ambitious, I think. Uh, and it's plotted, it's a historical novel uh, set on the kind of gold rush, set during the gold rush in uh, 1860s, west coast of New Zealand. Um, and it's plotted in a completely original way, I think, which uh, I hope, I hope Ellen will talk about later. Um, and I think it's, it's quite astounding when you, when you hear about it. Um, Eleanor grew up in New Zealand, uh, where she studied and lives now. Um, her first novel, The Rehearsal, won the Betty Trask Award and was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award, among many other accolades. Uh, and to my right, we have Hannah Kent. Um, we can't let Eleanor Catton's precociousness blind you to Hannah Kent's own. Um, Barrow writes as Kent's debut novel. Um, it was the subject of an international bidding war. Um, like The Luminaries, it's a novel set in the 19th century. Um, though Burial Rights uh, introduces the fascinating culture of Ireland, uh, Iceland in, the, in, in 1829. Um, its narrator, Agnes uh, Daughter is a woman condemned to death for her, her part in the murder of her lover. Um, she's sent to work out her final months with a, with a family, uh, and a lot revolves around the interaction between that family as they get to know each other, and, and with a, a priest sent to... Sent, sent to kind of hear her final confessions and try and bring her around to the light side before she dies. Um, Hannah was born in Adelaide and lives in Melbourne, uh, where she teaches at Flinders University. Is that right? Okay. In Adelaide, yep. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, she's the co-founder and publisher of Australian literary journal Kill Your Darlings. Um, there are, so there are some obvious similarities between both these books. Uh, they're both set in the 19th century. Um, they're both from, as the title says, fiercely talented writers from Down Under. Um, but we'll, we'll ignore that for now. Um, <laughs> both, both were written by women born, like I say, in 1985. Um, but there are significant differences, and I'll try and bring out... But I think they, both, both these writers approach the same kind of interest in fiction, whether it's plots, whether it's narrative voice, in, in, in different ways, and, and deal with the, the same issues in quite interestingly different ways, and I hope I'll bring that out by asking slightly different questions to each of you. Um, so I'll, I'll get on with it. Um, what, I, what, I, what I'd like each of you to do first is, um, starting with you, Eleanor, is could you please uh, introduce the kind of way, way novel sets um, and when it's set, and then 
and, and, and the scenario behind it, and, and just give a little short, a five minute reading just to give, a, give the audience a taste of a few minutes. That'd be sure. great. Thank you. Um, yeah, my, my novel is set uh, in the middle of the 1860s in the, on the west coast of the South Island of New Zealand. Um, during a gold rush, it wasn't New Zealand's only gold rush, but it was um, a, a kind of significant gold rush in New Zealand history. And, uh, you know, I think one of the first things that got me really excited about that, there's kind of the two parts of the question, there's the, the place and then there's the time. And I think that the, the, the time was very interesting to me uh, for the reason that New Zealand, uh, you know, has been described by some historians as having the most compressed history of any uh, country in the Western world, in the sense that it was the last to be kind of colonised in the conventional sense, but the first to achieve total democracy, meaning uh, the vote for women, we're the first country in the world to get the vote for women, and also the first country, uh, you know, among the first country in the world to get the vote for the native peoples, the Māori people as well as um, for white men. Uh, and so that, there, there, a lot happened in the 19th century, um, because in um, it was only in 1840 that the treaty was signed between the Crown and the, and the Māori people. And, uh, and so this kind of um, very rapid rate of change was really exciting to me, just kind of in general, I suppose. Um, and as for the place, uh, the, specifically the West Coast Gold Rush, I grew up in Christchurch, which is in the, on the east coast of the South Island and uh, very often made the journey over the mountains to the west coast with my family. We were kind of a, a tramping, kind of outdoorsy family, and I, I, I made that journey, you know, a, a lot as a child. And there was something about the west coast, the, the, um, I, I suppose the drama of the atmosphere there, that uh, captured my imagination in a way that I would say is almost singular, you know, from, of, of any place in New Zealand. It's, if, if, I don't know if any of you have ever been there, but it's, it's a very kind of startlingly uh, severe landscape. There, there are very, very high alps on one side and a, and a kind of a, a savage sea on the other. And in between this kind of almost corridor of land is um, rainforested and, and very, um, um, very dramatic in its weather patterns. And when gold was discovered there, uh, it was com almost completely unsettled. And so the gold rush really started all these towns, um, Hokitika, which is the town where my book is set among them, um, and they really quite literally grew out of, out of nothing at all. So I, I kind of liked that idea. Um, great, so I'm, I'm just going to read a, a short section um, uh, that, that takes place. Um, uh, what, I, what, what do I need to tell you? Um, when, when the, uh, just before the book begins, uh, the, the town's, Hokitika's most wealthy and in many ways most fortunate prospector disappears. And uh, sometime after this, an enterprising and um, kind of slightly dubious woman who's recently been widowed decides to hold a seance in order to make contact with him, which is a kind of a slightly suspicious um, choice on her behalf because it's not yet been established that the prospector truly is dead. So I'm going to read you a section that comes just before, um, just before this seance. Mr. Walter Moody, Mrs. Lydia Wells, said Gasquan. Mr. Moody has come to Hokitika from Scotland, Mrs. Wells, to make his fortune in the gorge. Mrs. Wells, as you will know, Mr. Moody, is the mistress of this establishment and a great enthusiast of realms. 
Lydia made a very pretty curtsy and Moody a short but respectful bow. Moody then paid the necessary compliments to his hostess, thanking her very nicely for the evening's entertainment and praising her renovations of the old hotel. Despite his best efforts, the compliments came out very flat. When he looked at her, he thought only of Lauderback and Crosby Wells. When he had finished speaking, she said, Do you have an interest in the occult, Mr. Moody? A question which Moody could not answer honestly without risking offence. He paused only a moment, however, before replying, There are many things that are yet arcane to me, Mrs. Wells, and I hope that I am a curious man. If I am interested in those truths that are yet unknown, it is only so that they might, in time, be made known, or, to put it more plainly, so that in time I might come to know them. You are wonderfully free with one verb, I notice, the widow returned. What does it mean for you, Mr. Moody, to know something? I fancy you've put rather a lot of stock in knowing, judging from the way you speak. Moody smiled. Why, he said, I suppose that to know a thing is to see it from all sides. To see it from all sides, the widow repeated. But I confess you catch me off guard. I have not spent any time working on the definition and should not like to hear it quoted back to me, at least not until I have spent some time thinking about how I might defend it. No, the widow agreed, your definition leaves much to be desired. There are so many exceptions to the rule. How could one possibly see a spirit from, one, from all sides, for example? The notion is incredible. Moody gave another short bow. You are right to name that as an exception, Mrs. Wells, but I am afraid I do not believe a spirit can be known at all by anyone, and I certainly do not believe a spirit can be seen. I do not mean to impugn your talents in the slightest, but there it is. I do not believe in spirits, categorically. And yet you applied for a ticket to the seance this evening, the widow pointed out. My curiosity was piqued. By the particular spirit in question, perhaps. Mr. Staines, Moody shrugged. I've never met the man. I arrived in Hokitika some fortnight after he disappeared. But since then, I have heard his name many times, of course. Mr. Gasquan says that you have come to Hokitika to make your fortune. Yes, so I hope. And how will you make it? By dint of hard work and good planning, I expect. Of course, there are many rich men who work little and plan nothing at all. Those men are lucky, Moody said. Do you not wish to be lucky also? I wish to be able to call myself deserving of my lot, Moody said carefully. Luck is by nature undeserved. What an honourable answer, said Lydia Wells. And a truthful one, I hope, said Moody. Aha, said the widow, we are back to truth again. Gasquan had been watching Lydia Wells. You see how her mind is working, he said to Moody. She'll swoop down in a moment and savage your argument. Prepare yourself. I hardly know how to prepare to be savaged, Moody said. Gasquan was right. The widow lifted her chin and said, Are you a man of religion, Mr. Moody? I am a man of philosophy, he rejoined. Those aspects of religion that can be called philosophy interest me extremely. Those that cannot, do not. I see, said Lydia Wells. I am, I am afraid that in my case it is quite the reverse. It is only those philosophies that can be called religions that hold any interest for me. Gasquan laughed outright at this. Very good, he said, wagging his finger. That is very good. Moody was amused despite himself by the widow's acuity, but he was determined not to let her take the upper hand. It seems that we have little in common, Mrs. Wells, he said. I hope that this lack of common ground will not be an impediment to friendship. We disagree upon the validity of spirits. We have established that much, said Lydia Wells. But let me put the contrary question to you. 
What about a soul, a living soul? Do you believe that you can know a person who is living if you cannot know a person who is dead? Moody considered this, smiling. After a moment, the widow went on. Do you feel that you could ever truly know your friend Mr. Gasquan, for example? Can you see him from all sides? Gasquan looked very peeved for having been used as a rhetorical example and said so aloud. The widow shushed him and put the question to Moody a second time. Moody looked at Gasquan. In fact, he had anatomized Gasquan's character to a very fine degree of detail over the three weeks of their acquaintance. He felt that he understood the scope and limits of the man's intelligence, the quality of his sentiment, and the tenor of his many expressions and habits. He felt as a whole that he could summarize the man's character very accurately. But he knew that Lydia Wells was intending to trap him, and in the end he chose to reply very blandly indeed, repeating that he had only arrived in Hokitaka but three weeks ago and could not hope to form an accurate assessment of Gasquan's soul in such a time. That project, he added, would require more than three weeks of observation. Mr. Moody was Mr. Carver's passenger, Gasquan put in. He arrived on the Godspeed the very night she came to ground. Moody felt a stirring of unease at this disclosure. He had used a false name while booking his passage upon Godspeed, and he did not like to advertise the fact that he had arrived in Hokitaka upon that craft, given the nature of what he had witnessed, or imagined that he had witnessed, in the hours before the ship had founded. He looked at the widow, seeking in her face some flicker of doubt or recognition that might show that she had known about the bloody phantom in Godspeed's hold. But Lydia Wells was smiling. Did he? she said, looking Moody up and down. Then I'm afraid Mr. Moody is a very common specimen of man indeed. How so? Moody said stiffly. The widow laughed. You are a lucky man who is scornful of the notion of luck, she said. I am afraid, Mr. Moody, that I have met a great many men like you. Thanks, so I know that we've, we've been introduced to, uh, to two of the, of the, of the very kind of large cast there, of kind of 12, 12 main, uh, well, I won't, I won't go into it too far, but there are characters who represent different kind of, um, how to talk about it without breath, 12 kind of um, zodiacal characters, and, and, and then six or seven, seven? seven. I'm not sure, anyway. Um, but now we will, we will um, would you, Hannah, would you tell us a little bit about your, um, where, you, where, you, where your novel is set and when? Again, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, a lot, it's very distant from here right now. And, uh, and, and give us a reading, to give us an example of, um, of, of, sure. of, of, of give us a taste of your novel. Sure. Uh, well, my novel, uh, Burial Rights, is actually based on a true story. Um, it's based on the story of Agnes Magnusdottir, who in Iceland was the last person to officially be executed. Uh, she was beheaded in 1830 for her role in the very grisly, uh, infamous murder of two men. Uh, they were basically bashed to death and stabbed as they lay sleeping. And the farm where they were sleeping in, the farmhouse, which was in Iceland at this time, people lived in small turf sort of crofts, uh, was then set on fire. Um, and originally it was thought to be an accident. And then as the, the next day when the farmers, the local farmers came to see this uh, these burnt ruins of this croft, they discovered stab wounds and blood on, on remains of unburnt clothing on the men. And three people were convicted of the crime. And they included Agnes and also a much younger boy of 16 years old and also the other maid who lived 
with Agnes at this place. Um, so they were, the crime was committed in 1828 in the north of Iceland um, and, the, uh, and they were executed, uh, Agnes and also Friedrich, the young man, were executed in 1830. And my novel takes place basically after the crime and after the sentencing has already occurred. Uh, Agnes has been found guilty of conspiracy to murder and her role, which is they're not quite sure but they know that she was implicated, they think she was probably orchestrated this very vicious murder. And uh, because Iceland, particularly in the north of Iceland, because there's no public facilities to hold them, like a jail or sort of a community hall, she is sent uh, to basically wait out the months until her execution with a, the farm of a district officer, a local authority in the north, in the same valley where she lived. Um, and the novel really looks at her relationships, like Luke said, with the, with the family who are forced to host her in a way and who resent the fact that they have to do that and also with the priest who is assigned this very young assistant reverend who is assigned to sort of bring her to redemption in the final months of her life. The section I'll read is um, from quite early on in the book where Agnes is being moved from uh, Storteborg, which is this rather nasty farm where some of the trial has taken place uh, in the north, quite close to where the murder occurred, uh, to Cornsale, where she is to wait out the rest of her time until her death. Um, the novel is also composed uh, in third person and also first person. And the first person sections of the novel are written in Agnes's voice. And I guess they provide a, an insight into what's going on in her head at the time. So, uh, so I'll read the section from when she's being moved. She's about to be moved to Cornsall. They have taken me from the room and put me in irons again. This time they sent an officer of the court, a young man with pock skin and a nervous smile. He's a servant from Kvamur. I recognised his face. When his lips broke apart, I could see that his teeth were rotting in his mouth. His breath was awful, but no worse than my own. I know I am rank. I am scabbed with dirt and the accumulated weeping of my body. Blood, sweat, oil. I cannot think of when I last washed. My hair feels like a greased rope. I have tried to keep it plaited, but they have not allowed me ribbons. And I imagine that to the officer, I looked like a monstrous creature. Perhaps that was why he smiled. He took me from that awful room and other men joined us as he led me through the unlit corridor. They were silent, but I felt them behind me. I felt their stares as though they were cold hand grips upon my neck. And then after months in a room filled only with my own fetid breath and the stench from the chamber pot, I was taken through the corridors of Storteborg into the muddy yard, and it was raining. How can I say what it was like to breathe again? I felt newborn. I staggered in the light of the world and took deep gulps of fresh sea air. It was late in the day. The wet mouth of the afternoon was full on my face. My soul blossomed in that brief moment as they led me out of doors. I fell, my skirts in the mud, and I turned my face upwards as if in prayer. I could have wept from the relief of light. A man reached down and pulled me from the ground as one rests a thistle that takes root in a place it does not belong. It was then that I noticed the crowd that had gathered. At first I did not know why these people stood about, men and women alike each still and staring at me in silence. Then I understood that it was not me they stared at. <coughs> I understood that these people did not see me. I was two dead men. I was a burning farm. I was a knife. 
I was blood. I didn't know what to do in front of these people. Then I saw Rosa watching from a distance, clutching the hand of her little daughter. It was a comfort to see someone I recognised and I smiled involuntarily, but the smile was wrong. It unlocked the crowd's fury. The servant women's faces twisted and the silence was broken by a sudden brief shriek from a child. Fiandi! Devil. It burst into the air like an explosion of water from a geyser. The smile dropped from my face. At the sound of the insult, the crowd seemed to awaken. Someone gave a brittle laugh and the child was hushed and led away by an older woman. One by one, they all left to return indoors or to continue their chores until I was alone with the officers in the drizzle, standing in stockings stiff with dried sweat, my heart burning under my filthy skin. When I looked back, I saw that Rosa had disappeared. Now we are riding across Iceland's north, across this island washing in its waters, sulking in its ocean, chasing our shadows across the mountains. They have strapped me to the saddle like a corpse being taken to the burial ground. In their eyes, I am already a dead woman, destined for the grave. My arms are tethered in front of me. As we ride this awful parade, the irons pinch my flesh until it bloodies in front of my eyes. I have come to expect harm now. Some of the watchmen at Storteborg compassed my body with small violences, chronicled their hatred towards me. A mark here, bruises blossoming like star clusters under the skin, black and yellow smoke trapped under the membrane. I suppose some of them had known Natan. But now they are, take, they are taking me east, and although I am tired like a lamb for slaughter, I am grateful that I am returning to the valleys where rocks give way to grass, even if I will die there. As the horses struggle through the tussocks, I wonder when they will kill me. I wonder where they will store me, cellar me like butter, like smoked meat, like a corpse, waiting for the ground to unfreeze before they can pocket me in the earth like a stone. Thank you. Thanks, Hannah. That was a very evocative reading. Um, I'd, like, I'd like to ask you both a question about narrative voice. Um, Eleanor, we didn't get... Uh, yours was most dialogue before, but so we didn't quite get... We didn't get a sense of... What I think is an incredibly rich, uh, confident, um, 19th century style narrator in, in your book that has the kind of direct address, it makes the kind of direct address to the reader um, that the kind of 19th century novelists do, talking to a reader with shared assumptions, essaying opinions on character and morality. Um, and I, want, I wanted to ask you how you, um, how you came up with your own version of this. Um, Particularly, like um, you know, whether you derived it from certain writers and what it was to use use this voice as a kind of modern modern person, mm. um, and and sort of what um, yeah, that, I'll, I'll leave it. At that. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, that's interesting. I think yeah, my answer to this is slightly odd. Um, yeah. I, I found when I, I I did a masters in the United States at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and I found when I was there that I was alone among. Uh, um, many of my fiction colleagues were really um, feeling like the adverb was this really awesome part of speech um, that, <laughs> that everybody just seemed to be dumping on all the time and um, it really bothered me because um, I kind of wanted to defend the adverb you know and I and I, so I, one of the aspects of the degree was we had to write a paper on some some 
you know, element of fiction of our choosing. And I wrote it on mine on, on about adverbs and parts of speech and why why it is that that we have such hostility to this one. You know, it's in every writing manual that you can possibly find these days. Where do Even, you think it comes um, from? From Hemingway and people like that, or uh, well, my my theory about it. So this is kind yeah. of a roundabout so way to get back to your answer. But um, my theory about it is that you know, when you say when you use an adverb, basically, you know, if I said, you know. Uh, you know, he spoke condescendingly, or he spoke um, annoyingly, or something like this. It's very uncertain whether the condescension um, resides actually in the person's speech, or res resides in my perception of the speech. It's a very uncertain part of part of speech in that way. And I think that one of the reasons why we we can't handle adverbs <laughs> in the modern day um, is that. You know, it, it requires such a, a kind of an act of confidence to pull off, or a kind of audacity almost, to pull off saying, no, 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 this is, this is the way that this was. You know, Rita, just you settle down. Is it, there's a, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I, I started reading a lot of, at this, around about this time when I was kind of researching this book, I was reading a lot of 19th century fiction, um, and also early 20th century fiction, um, and was noticing just how much of the characterization resides in the adverbs in the 19th century. Okay. Not only in the, the one word, but also in, the, um, in adverbial phrases. Um, there's a, an example I can think of off the top of my head in a Henry James novel where um, um, some, somebody, uh, a, a young man says, um, you know, oh, d don't cause a scene to this young woman. And she says, do women cause scenes? And it says, all women do, said Morris, with a tone of large experience. This is the little um, yeah. adverbial phrase. Yeah. And it's so lovely, because there's yeah. so much that's captured there. He's so pinned down as a character in that tiny little phrase. Yeah. And I think that the reason why they, that they, you know, in the 19th century you could get away with mm. this is because the narrative voices were so confident. Mm. And I, so that, that's kind of a very roundabout way of, of, of answering the, the, uh, the question. Yeah. Um, and, and what's and what's the dilemma between using that confident nineteenth century novel now when when uh, you know various kind of critics spoke about the kind of power of that voice that that, that, that kind of makes assumptions about the person which they might not necessarily share? Is, is, did you did you yeah. have it? Well, I mean, I think the the big <coughs> kind of gulf that stands between us and nineteenth century novels is psychology, mm. and I don't think that we can really under underestimate how much psychology just changed the landscape of the novel forever because obviously you know the novel is a artifact that can be both interior and exterior it can be both inside a person and looking at them from the outside and all of a sudden with psychology we we have this kind of way of navigating the internal um, you know aspect of, of, of a person yeah I, so I think that for some reason we're just we're very uncomfortable with the idea that we can be anatomized these, you know, today we we kind of that we're very individualistic. I think in the way that we 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 yeah. see selfhood, which I think is quite different. Yeah. Well, in my experience, it's mm. quite different from the way that selfhood is treated in the nineteenth century. So I was I was yeah. kind of trying to tap into that. Um, there's the the other kind of part of that is that um, uh, this book has a kind of an astrological uh, scaffolding or backbone where uh, a lot of the characters, uh, all of the characters are kind of uh, representative of the archetypes of the zodiac, not only the, the, the signs but also the planets. 
And what a very interesting thing about my experience in putting this together is mention the zodiac to people and the 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 fury with which <laughs> with which people will respond. Worse than the verbal, they're all the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, just Sorry. the idea the idea that, that that you could be diagnosed from the outside. Yes. For, for some people, this is extremely aggravating, and other people, they're, they're really okay with it. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah so that, that kind of plays yeah, into that great. in an interesting way. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll get back to the, yeah. yes, the, the zodiacal nature of it. But, um, and your narrative voice, Hannah, um, is, is very interesting too. It's actually a series of narrative voices. You have, you know, made up of um, first person uh, kind of confessional voice of, of Agnes. Uh, Agnes's voice, um, very kind of meticulously managed, so you find out what's happening gradually. Um, you also have fragments of letters um, uh, to various priests, to other priests, priests to uh, um, politicians and bureaucrats, um, and you also have a kind of third-person narrative which kind of narrates the more feminine story and the priest story. Now, I was just wondering why. Um, why you pieced your novel together out of those three things? It's very successful and it's very and it's really refreshing to have these change. But um, but why? How did how did you derive that and, and, and why did you come up with it to tell your story in that way? It's a good question. Um, to answer, I probably need to take you back to when I first, very briefly. I won't go on forever about it. But when I first heard the story of Agnes Magnus Dottir, um, it was a various circumstances. I was li living in Iceland at the time. And um, I heard the very basic sort of information about this this woman. I actually was driven past the site of execution, and you know the landscape there is quite extraordinary. And I commented at the time to it to my travelling companions, and that's when they mentioned it was the site of uh, of this beheading in, in 1830. And um, I was immediately intrigued. I felt this very immediate fascination with this woman, and uh, for reasons that I still to this day can't quite explain. Um, but it led me throughout the course of the rest of the year of my exchange and also in the years following to, to do some light research into the case and really to try and find out what sort of woman Agnes Magnus Dottir was. And as soon as I started to do some translation and read some articles about the crime and about the execution, I was very struck by the way in which she um, was always represented in in, in an unequivocal stereotype, basically. She was always spoken of in unequivocal terms. She was monstrous. She was evil. She has, was completely bad. There was, it was very, very black and white sort of perception of her. And this, um, this really unsettled me. I, uh, I was, I guess, looking for a more, um, for some external circumstances that might have contributed to her being in this very unfortunate situation of being condemned for murder. You know, I wondered of her social standing, how that might have influenced her to be in this particular position or, you know, cultural aspects and so on. And these were entirely lacking. All you had instead was this woman was inherently a monster and that's why she did the crime that she was accused of. Um, so when I, this basically created a frustration that led me to want to write the book. I wanted to find out the, I guess the, the ambiguity and complexity of this woman. I didn't necessarily want to protest her, her guilty conviction and you know, research it and hopefully you know, vindicate her, um, but I did want to discover something of her humanity. And so when I decided that I would write a book to do this, to explore the human side of this woman who had been sort of spoken of throughout the years as a monster, I decided that it would need to be done through voice. 
And one thing that also struck me about the sources I was reading were that they were incredibly dry, incredibly bureaucratic, and completely lacking in any sort of emotion, as even, you know, administrative sort of sources uh, continue to be like today. And I thought, if I'm going to write a novel that is going to at least privilege her perspective, I'm going to have to give her a voice that is in direct opposition to these very dry bureaucratic voice. So the novel really started with this idea of having first person passages that I thought in opposition again to those very boring letters, very dry statistical information to be lyrical and to be very metaphoric and to be almost like um, to run as, as prose poetry. But then, of course, I know, um, having read books that are entirely composed or written in that way, that it can be really tiresome as a reader to have to kind of wade through your metaphor after metaphor. And so I thought, well, I'm going to have to introduce a third person sort of perspective to balance it out. So it's not all sort of, you know, talk about the snow and the stones and the reader has to read between the lines every single time. So that's really how the structure sort of came together and I wanted to illustrate the difference between the way in which the crime was recorded in history and what has been passed down and many of the letters and, and official documents in the book are more or less accurate translations of actual documents surrounding the crime and then you know counter it with this deeply felt deeply emotional lyrical first person voice of Agnes. So that's how that came about. Right. Okay. Um, both both the novels are very um, very generous, kind of hospitable novels. They are full of suspense. They're very quick to read. Um, I was surprised how quickly I, I read. I read 832 pages. I mean, they, they, you know, I read them very quickly, and and they're full of intrigue and suspense. Um, Incredibly well plotted, and I, I, I want to ask you both two questions about plot. Really, one first is a very just a basic technical question: is how easy do you find it to to plot a novel of that complexity? And, and um, yeah, how do you do it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a million-dollar question. Um, yeah, well, I've I've always been kind of fascinated and also enraged by that um, definition of you know so-called literary yeah. fiction versus genre fiction is you know in, in literary fiction uh literary fiction uh character um is the kind of the, the main subject and plot only exists insofar insofar as it can kind of elucidate character whereas in genre fiction the, the reverse is true and characters only exist insofar as they propel the plot you know so they'll get killed off or brought on stage or brought off stage you know depending on where, where the plot is moving and um, you know, I'd, I've, I'd, I heard that uh, you know, you know, a number of years ago, and kind of puzzled over it for a while. And for me, the, the actual, the real, uh, the real kind of uh, catalyst for um, wanting to write a very, very plot-driven novel um, was reading uh, Italo Calvino's *The Castle of Cross Destinies*. I don't know if anybody knows this book, but um, you know, a few years ago, I was learning to read tarot cards just as a kind of a fun thing to do at dinner parties. And, um, and uh, somebody put me onto this book, which um, Calvino patterned on an actual tarot card spread. So he made a, the kind of 78 card spread and, and navigated the book's journey based on the spread. And I read it, and, and it was just so boring. Like, the book was so dull. And, it, <laughs> and um, the, I started thinking, you know, why, why does it always have to be either structure or plot why did why does one always have to go can't can't there be you know can't writers sometimes you know put a little bit of pressure on themselves to create the kind of surprise 
you know, that the, the, the reader is not expecting and that kind of thing. So it was very kind of negatively, yeah. negatively rather than positively influenced. Right. I think that if I did have a positive influence, it would actually be in um, a modern day uh, TV drama, which um, was kind of a big part of my 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 life. <laughs> any any, any um, programs in particular? Oh, I mean, every, I mean, all the usual yeah. stuff. Like right. a, a show like Breaking Bad, you know, yeah. for me, or something like, you know, they're just they're, they're masters of suspense, yeah. and they're so they're so good at keeping both character and plot alive, which yeah. is really what what for me, you know, what yeah. is possible. I don't yeah. see why it always has to be one at the expense of the other. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Um, and and how's um, you, again, you know, your, your, your novel is very, very suspenseful. Again, how did you, how, did, how difficult is it for you to kind of create, create that, that structure, that plot with, you know, with holding information and keeping it going? Is it, is it natural to you? Do you have to plan things out in advance? Or do you, do you know what's happening before it happens? Or do you, oh. I wish many I could, questions. I wish I could say yeah. it was really, really difficult. Um, yeah. Just so you know, I, I got there in the end and it was all very meticulously yeah. planned. Yeah. It wasn't at all. I think the plot in my book was kind of happy accident. Yeah. Um, a lot of that came from the fact that there was so much research put into this book, but it was a very gradual, very laborious process, and I only ever knew a certain amount of information at any time, particularly regarding the things that I guess the, the plot hinges on, the, the execution and the crime, and I guess the extent to which Agnes was involved. Um, and so I, as I was writing, as I was, I was researching and writing at the same time, and because my knowledge was limited, I necessarily had to make the book suspenseful because I was in suspense. I hadn't yet found out what happened. Um, and the other reason I suppose it's like that is um, I, I wasn't actually, I didn't actually give plot any thought. Um, I probably should have. I was actually thinking much more along character. It was the character of Agnes, which of course led me to write the book in the first place in search of her character. And uh, a great deal of the plot came naturally out of, I guess, the way in which very different characters, once I established who they were and what sort of people they were like, how they interacted and what might result. So um, it, was really, uh, it was really a combination of those things. And also the fact that uh, I knew from the start that the book would be set in uh, basically up shortly after she was moved, which was in summer, to when she would be executed, which was in winter. And uh, rather than go through the whole crime in sort of real time. And the reason I did that was simply because um, for anyone who has been to Iceland will know that the slow descent into winter is um, incredibly atmospheric. And as a novelist, it's the type of thing that you clutch at because it just lends immediately sort of immediate drama. Um, and so I knew also, just logistically speaking, that if you were a stranger and you were to arrive with a family who didn't want you there, you wouldn't necessarily then tell your story. Of course you would hold it back. And it, was only, it would only be as you slowly began to form relationships with the people that you were with that you would sort of be forthcoming. So it was all kind of a combination of, of common sense and, um, and luck, I think. I wish I you know, had a much more intellectual answer, but I don't. Um, that's fine, I think that's, that's natural. Um, <laughs> uh, just to keep it on plot briefly, I, I just wanted to ask whether, whether I really feel that plot Damages you as a writer, whether whether like you you know we we we, tu we touched on this you know whether it damages your attempt to represent life truthfully or it, whether um, I mean like Ian Forster said like in the losing battle plot faces a character uh, plot always takes a terrible revenge on character and all novels go off at the end he said and, and his idea was that 
in, in trying to contrive your, your work into, into a shape, you always have to kind of move away from kind of the shapelessness of human experience, I guess. Um, and, 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 you know, you have writers like James Wood who talk about the mindlessness of suspense as well. And I just wondered, do, is there any truth in those, in those kind of positions for you? And do you find that when you're writing a plotted novel, do you find you have to... Are there compromises you make between trying to describe life, you know, in inverted commas, truthfully, and, 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 and also trying to satisfy in terms of an overall satisfying structure or plot? Well, you know, I, I, I want, yeah. I wanted this book to be entertaining. I yeah. think, and yeah. um, I also want, I, you know, just with this particularly, I was trying to write a um, murder mystery, you know, and I wanted a kind of, I was reading a lot of Agatha Christie and, and kind of 20th century crime novels to kind of try and get inside the, um, try and figure out what makes something mysterious, what makes us want to keep, um, to keep reading. And so I wouldn't, you know, I would, I would get very um, defensive, I think, if somebody were to make that uh, distinction between if you're trying to entertain, then you're doing something lowbrow, whereas if you're yeah. trying to befuddle somebody, then you're doing something, yeah. you're doing something well, uh, highbrow. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, that's I've forgotten, I've forgotten I mean, your, I mean, my jet lag has forgotten no, the no, second part of your question. You, you, uh, <laughs> well, you kind of set your stall out, really. I, I guess that's it, whether... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the main question was, was whether you th whether whether that structure interfered with describing your characters truthfully. Whether you whether you thought there was a tension yeah. against those, but were, but I, I don't think there is. I, I certainly don't think there is. But it's, it's something that uh, kind of more experimental novelists often say. You know, that you can't, yeah. you can't write a plot because it will. It, it will no, get I think like, uh, I think it's a really interesting yeah. point. Um, what, what's coming to mind actually is. Um, uh, you know the movie studio Pixar, who's done all the um, you know movies like Toy Story and really fantastic movies, really well plotted movies um, for children. Uh, one of the story writers for Pixar recently tweeted a whole bunch of um, pieces of advice for wannabe screenwriters, and it was one of the few lists of things that you should do in writing where I agreed with absolutely everything. Yeah. I thought it was so brilliant, and one of them was um, was. Uh, Using a coincidence to get your characters into trouble is great. Using a coincidence to get your characters out of trouble is cheating. Um, and I, I really like this piece of advice. And I think that it's, it's true in the sense that, um, you know, there is plot that is making your work more interesting. There are plot moves that are making your work more interesting and there are pro yeah. plot moves that are solving problems for you essentially yeah. as a writer. Yeah. And, um, my strategy with this book was to paint myself into a corner as much as I possibly could and then try and think, well, how the hell am I going to get out of, you know, I, I've just said that this guy's got a big secret. <laughs> now it's got to be really good, you know, what, you know that, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think my strategy with that was to try and make things as difficult as possible for me um, in order for, so that they would be as rewarding as possible for the reader. It's kind of like taking on... Um, the burden of plotting so that the reader doesn't, yeah. I don't know, doesn't, you, 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 so that you don't disappoint them, I suppose. Yeah. But I think that in general there's a, I would say that there's a really big difference between um, character-driven um, plot and uh, kind of action-driven plot or plot-driven plot. Whereas, you know, which is to say there is a difference between uh, something that happens in a, in a story 
where you think, gosh, you know, that character couldn't have done that a hundred pages ago. What their, their, their sense of what is possible, their, their personality has changed, they've enlarged or they've, they've, they've altered in some way. And I think that that's always so, yeah. we, we receive that so gladly. Whereas on the other side, there's the, the kind of plot, which is more like a soap opera, where you're, you get the sense that an author just killed somebody because it was more convenient for them to do yeah. so. Yeah. And that's always just, I, I always get yeah. really... Um, there, are, there are good feel, plots and bad plots, you think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Truer ones than the novels. Um, <laughs> and then, and Hannah, I mean, it's the same question for you, really, whether, whether you felt compromised by the kind of need to kind of keep that suspense going. And I guess for you, it's tied up as well with um, your fidelity as well to, to the sources and, and how the, whether the two kind of, kind of interact for you, you know, and, and how, 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 how uh, the pressure you felt on you to kind of, you know, to ascertain some kind of historical truth as well, you know, again, um, it's a broad yeah. question, you know, I'll, I'll let you answer in whichever direction <laughs> you like. <laughs> well, um, um, no, you're right in saying that I felt I had an obligation to, uh, to stick to the truth as much as I could. Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of that determination to make this a very much a research-led creative process came from the fact that I was very aware of being a, a foreigner writing about a time and a country that was not my own. And I guess also the need to, you know, at least put some guidelines in place so that you could, you could be as ethical as possible, I suppose, as a historical novelist writing about the lives of people who actually existed. And so one of the things that I thought I could at least, um, you know, appease my guilty conscience with was by researching it very, very carefully and thoroughly. And when I could establish facts, you know, facts that weren't contradicted by other research, I had to have them in the book. So to some extent, I was doing, I guess, a little bit what you were doing, Eleanor, where, of course, I wasn't necessarily coming up with the plot points or the secrets myself. I had them sort of there in the historical sources, in the research. I knew that this happened on this particular day, and then several months later, this happened. So for me, it was kind of like an elaborate game of, you know, dot the dot. Um, so, so it was, you know, it was kind of a, a bit of a muddling through, but also I, I found it, because this was my first book as well, and I didn't actually know how you write a novel. I'd never tried it before. I didn't have any unfinished drafts in, you know, my bottom drawer. Um, so it was really a matter of putting out a whole timeline of everything I knew had to happen to stay true to the historical events and then also to work out how I get there in the most interesting way possible um, for myself as well as the reader. And that's really what happened. And again, I, all the speculation that I guess fills in those, those facts, fills in the gap between those two dots, came from much more broader research. So it wasn't, um, it, it, was, it was a slow process, but it was one that could be worked out inevitably, I guess if I put my mind to it, through a combination again of, of common sense, logic and, and, and informed speculation. But I was very much guided by having, I guess, the, the skeleton of the story already there. Um, I, could, I could ask loads more questions, but I'm not going to because we've got 10 minutes left and, and time's run away. So please, please, can we ask for any questions from the audience? I'm sure you've got, got lots of questions you'd like to ask these people. Uh, there's a woman at the back. Thank you. Um, my question is for Hannah Kent. I, I would like you to tell me a little bit more about the two sisters in the family because I found their characters and their behaviour very interesting and I'd, 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 like, I'd just like to hear you talk a bit more about them. Sure. Um, 
They, uh, for, for those of you who are, un who are unfamiliar with the novel, um, there are two sisters, the daughters of the farmer and the wife who are forced to accommodate Agnes and hold her in custody. And um, like I was saying earlier, everything in the book that is not exact fact is suggested by the research. And the two sisters came about when I was actually in Iceland doing archival research, um, trying to find Agnes in the ministerial records and in the, um, it's called Saldnoredstur in Icelandic and it basically literally translated means soul register, which is when the priests in the parish would go around from farm to farm once a year and I guess conduct a sort of census. They would write down the, the head of the house, the farmer, and everyone else who was there at the time in relation to the head, as well as their age. And then there would also be a brief uh, sort of report on their behaviour and also kind of a summary of their uh, you know, literacy ability. So it was a wonderful resource if I could actually find the people I was looking for in these, uh, in these soul registers. And I, and I did, I found the, the soul register for the family of Kornsa, um, who hold Agnes, uh, in the last year of her life. Um, She'd given a different last name, which is sort of explained in the book as well. Um, but I did find her, and, I, and it was great because immediately I knew the exact names and, I guess, the ages of the people that she would have lived with. And there were two sisters. And um, the, in, the, in the book, they have quite a peculiar relationship. The older sister is sort of a bit of a, a misfit. She's uh, much more sympathetic towards Agnes than the younger sister, who was incredibly hostile, probably the most hostile member of the family um, towards her. And, and they have an unusual relationship as well. The younger sister is sort of much more seemingly capable with chores, much more sort of socially aware than the elder one. And that all came about from the description the priest had put next to these sisters' names about their behaviour. Next to the first, the elder sister, uh, Steinvor or Steiner in the book, um, you know, it said, oh, you know, she's pretty well behaved and she can read and she can write. It was pretty average. But then the younger sister had you know, she's so well behaved, she's a credit to her family. And then with literacy, um, there was just one word, Fraubeit, which in Icelandic, I guess, is kind of the equivalent of like, awesome to this day. And it was so effusive and I was really struck by the difference. And I thought immediately, now there's, uh, there's an interesting sibling dynamic. And I have a younger sister who in probably many ways is much more socially aware and much more able than I am. So it was a combination of, I guess, using what was suggested in the research and also drawing to some extent on my own uh, you know, relationship with my, with my sister. Although we probably get along much better than those two in the book. Uh, uh, Eleanor, did you have any similar kind of inspirations when you were doing your research? Um... Oh, um, well, I, I guess a couple. I didn't, um, I didn't do a lot of historical research for this book, really, um, because all of the events are uh, invented. Um, but the one, the one story that really kind of um, captured my imagination when I was reading up on West Coast history and Hokitaka history in particular was an account of the Seaview prison, so the, the prison that was, began being built in 1866 on the little terrace just north of Hokitaka and the, um, it later became a, a mental asylum and then is now a hospital and you can, and you can still, still go there today. But what really captured my imagination about it was that um, it was a prison that was built using convict labour. So all of the um, people who had already been convicted, who would later be incarcerated there, were hired to build the very structure that you know, was, was going to house them. And I loved this idea so much because it seemed to chime so nearly with the ideas in my mind about um, fate. You know, the, particularly this idea of being a self-made person, you know, 
we're, we're kind of all, we all make our own prisons in a, way, in, a, in a way in terms of how we decide how to be and how we, um, how we approach our, the, the kind of the question of our own fates. Um, and so, yeah, I really, I really loved that idea. Um, but I think, I think that that was the only thing that I, that I actually drew upon from, from actual historical records, yeah. Um, so, any, any more questions? Um, over door in the third row. Uh, um, well, sorry, yes. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, Hannah, this is a question for you. Um, I wonder to what extent going to Iceland from Australia had any bearing on the story. Obviously, not so much the people, but a remote island that has a lot of insular history. Mm. It's a very good question. Um, I, I often call the year that I spent in Iceland as a 17-year-old my, my formative year. I think it really forged my, my character um, in, you know, in ways that I, probably sounds really dramatic to say that, but it did. It really made me the person I was today. And there was a combination of reasons that happened. But um, there was, I guess, coming from a place, you know, coming from Adelaide in, in South Australia where it's very, very dry, you know, I'd never seen snow before. Actually, that was the motivation to go to Iceland. I'd never seen snow and I really desperately wanted to. Um, and then encountering this landscape, which was incredibly alien, encountering very small community where immediately I had no sort of kinship network. I had very little sort of, I guess, um, uh, you know, support. I had sort of formal support structures in place through the exchange program, but nothing that was, I guess, personal. Um, and it was, a, you know, it was, I guess, um, a combination of really finding that very difficult in the first months and then transitioning and finding it much easier and actually getting to the stage where I fell in love with the country um, and you know to the point that I feel I, th I think of it as a second home um, but certainly in the book my own experiences are probably reflected there in the way in which I've described the landscape actually much more than the story I found the story probably much more interesting and questioned it probably a lot more as someone who had encountered it later in life and hadn't grown up with it in the same way that, say, Australians might grow up with the, with the myth or the story of, of Ned Kelly, as a lot of Icelanders have with the people involved in this crime. But the landscape was something that, um, I guess, completely unsettled me when I first arrived and then probably led me to engage much more with the community and finally to really fall in love with the place. And the other motivation besides trying to explore the character of Agnes Magnusdottir in writing this book was to, I guess, write this dark love letter to a landscape, to the natural world there, which so captivated me. So any description of the landscape is very sincerely felt on my behalf. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question. It's probably the closest I can get. Uh, we've probably got time for one more question, and there was, um, there's, we have someone waiting. Um, thank you. Mine's a question for Eleanor. Um, it's just that I'm terribly aware that the book is very, very long. <laughs> and, uh, it's kind of like, you know, can I really give that amount of time to read that? That's <laughs> a very good question. And I'm just wondering... You shouldn't um, ask me, you should ask my publicist. <laughs> well, your publishers obviously believe that that will happen, that people will give that time. But I myself find... Could it have been shorter? 
Um, I, th I, I think this is a perfect. I think this is a perfect question for perhaps you to describe some of the more structural peculiarities of your book because I don't yeah. think it could have been. I don't think it could have been a word choice, could it? Um, well, actually, um, I'm, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, I don't <laughs> think that it could have been. But the you know the the length kind of crept up on me a little bit with writing this book. Um, uh, you know, I never set out to write a really big long you know door stopping novel. Um, the, the answer to that has kind of two parts. The first part is that um, I discovered that by kind of taking on these aspects of a 19th century style and voice um, and by kind of introducing a very large cast of characters, in order to be fair to all of them um, and kind of let them evolve and change as, as people, it, the, it needed to be, you know, the length of, of the... 19th century novels that I was kind of reading and, and trying to emulate in lots of ways. Um, the other um, response to that is that the, there's a, another kind of structural conceit in, at, at work in the novel, which is that the, the book has 12 parts, and each part is half the length of the one that comes before it. So um, it kind of forms this um, golden spiral, so it spirals right down. So what, what this means is that the first part of the book is that long, it's 170,000 words, and the last <laughs> part of the book is just, I think it's 63 words. Um, so that's, that kind of gives you an idea of how dramatic um, the power of two is, you know, <laughs> as a shaping force. And this was something that I, that I kind of stumbled onto quite early on. There's, there's also an amount of money in the book that keeps on getting halved, so there's a kind of a, a correlation there. Um, but for various, it might take me too long to describe, but just for various structural reasons, once I'd lit upon this idea, I really wanted to see if I could make it work. Um, and so, yeah, any, yeah, so, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. When, uh, <laughs> what, what was it like realizing that it was going to work? Because it's actually, it's a kind of audacious structure, and, and, and we, did you ever believe it would actually work when you when you envisaged it? I and mean, then was there a moment when you when you realised it? it well, was? No, well, it was yeah. interesting. Like I think I I sent this uh, novel off to my editor in London at around about um, 10 p.m. New Zealand time, sometime in January, and um, when I finally had sent it off, you sent it off. You know, I'd been running over deadlines for years and years, and um, kind of lying to everybody about how finished it was when it wasn't. And um, Woke up the next morning and I quite, you know, there's all these cliches about burdens being lifted, but I actually, I felt so much lighter, like I felt like I'd lost about 20 kilograms and I just kind of floated around the house after <laughs> having finished it and I realised that I'd been carrying around this kind of, just this incredible anxiety for such a long time because I didn't know whether it was possible until it was done, yeah. you know, because there's a thing that a, an almost novel is not a novel, you know, and so that's kind of what you that's what it feels like. You haven't done it up until the point where you've done it. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, well, we, we've we've had our hour and it's been it's been brilliant. Um, so can we? Um, I'm good. That both writers will be signing books. Um, Eleanor's up for the Booker Prize, as we know. Um, I, I know I know I know Hannah's up for the prize, but I don't think it's been released yet. So, but anyway, well, the reason I tell you this is because uh, signed first editions of uh, prize-winning books are very valuable. So, I'm, I'm not, you should buy it not even just because you want to buy it, just for investment, uh, <laughs> potential investment. It's all about. Yeah. Um, anyway, but I think it's, we've had a lovely event, and, and both writers spoke wonderfully. So, can we all raise our hands to <laughs> Elliot Catton and Hannah? Kent.
More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.